0: Good morning. I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. So on Tuesday, the most important election of your lifetime is taking place, as we are reminded every four years. Four years from now, I'm sure that one will be uh, the most important of your lifetime, but Tuesday, the most important election of your lifetime is happening, and certainly elections have consequences. So if you live in America, you're probably at least curious to find out the results of the presidential election and other elections taking place, although you might have to wait till January 20th to know for sure. But what if I told you that the most important political event in the history of the world, and the one that has the most direct implications for your life personally, already happened. It's already been decided. And because it's already happened, you don't have to wait until Wednesday or January 20th. You don't have to wait at all to find out about it because the results are available to you in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 records a God given vision in which Daniel foresaw the most significant political event in history. And by political, I mean the event that pertains to the governments of the world, all of them, the government of these United States included, national governments. Local governments, the government of the world, the government of peoples, the event that Daniel sees in Daniel 7 has to do with the governments of the nations. And the ramifications of these events are more important and longer lasting, more monumental than the results of the election that takes place on Tuesday. And in saying that, I don't mean that Tuesday doesn't matter. I just mean that whatever happens Tuesday is subordinate to what Daniel saw here. Okay, that's important to keep in mind. Every other government action that happens, whether it's our city council or federal government, it's all underneath the events that Daniel saw here. Does that cause you to want to hear Daniel 7 at all? (laughs) I've told a few people, uh, we did not intentionally line it up this way. But if I had to pick one chapter in all of Daniel to preach on the Sunday before election day, it would be Daniel 7. And so God has a word for us here. I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you're able as I read through the entire chapter. I want to read the whole thing even though it's long because the meaning of the word is in the word. So I want you to hear the whole chapter. If you're able, stand with me. This is God's word. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery Flames. It's wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But... The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companion's. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High in the time when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, "'As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces.'" As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment And his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Speak to us through it that we might know you and your ways and trust you and walk in your ways all the days of our lives that Christ may have his dominion on this world that you love and gave your son to save. Amen. You may be seated. Daniel's a prophetic vision, which Daniel received in the form of a dream as he lay on his bed. And this vision is what we would classify as apocalyptic literature. Unfortunately, that word apocalypse has come to mean just the the connotation in society. You think of apocalypse, you think of what? The end of the world. Apocalypse means destruction of the world. But that comes from a misunderstanding of the book of Revelation. Apocalypse, the Greek word, means to unveil, to disclose, to make known, literally to reveal. So apocalypse means revelation, which is why we call that book Revelation. It's a revelation. It's supposed to reveal something. Nine times in this chapter, Daniel says, I saw or I looked. The words vision and dream are used a combined seven times. Another seven times he says Behold, which means look with me. So what we're dealing with here is revelation. Daniel receives direct revelation from God. It's divine revelation. God is showing something and we're supposed to see it. Apocalyptic literature in Scripture is known for vivid imagery and symbols, which can seem confusing at first. But always keep this in mind, apocalyptic literature reveals. It doesn't hide, it doesn't cover over, it doesn't confuse, it reveals. Think of this analogy I heard one author give. He said, think about vertical blinds that are turned like at a 45 degree angle. You know, if you stand one spot and you've got blinds like that, you you can't see outside. Move slightly, you can look along the angle of the blinds and you can see through the window, outside. Apocalyptic literature like moves us to the right angle so that we can see behind the scenes, massive events that are happening and unfolding in covenantal history. God is giving us a glimpse behind the scenes. We live in history. We're confused oftentimes by what's going on. We're always asking, what is God up to here? Apocalyptic literature reveals what God is up to in history. And in particular, apocalyptic literature reveals Jesus. Okay, this is important. Apocalyptic literature is not primarily about the destruction of the world, it's about the salvation of the world. It's not about how God destroys the world, it's about how God saves the world and redeems the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his own son to save the world. The apocalypse is not the destruction of the world, it's the revelation of Jesus and his kingship and Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of Daniel chapter 7. He is revealed here in power and glory for Daniel and the exiles from Judah who were living with Daniel in Babylon, and for God's people in every age, including this strange year, 2020. So, what does Daniel 7 reveal? Here's the main point. Even though kings and kingdoms rage against God and afflict his people, God has taken away their dominion, and he has given it to his people, under his anointed king forever, forever and ever. And I get that from verses 17 and 18, which is where the angel interprets the whole thing, takes the whole vision, packs it down into two sentences, and interprets it. Here's what it means. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever forever and ever. And I want to unpack that by looking at the four main characters or actors or groups of actors in Daniel 7. We're going to look at the beasts in rebellion against God. We're going to look at the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne ruling over everything, the Son of Man crowned as king, and then the saints of God given dominion. So that's my structure so you can follow along as we go. The beasts, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, the saints of God, beginning with the beasts in rebellion against God. Daniel's dream begins as a nightmare. It's a nightmare, four ferocious beasts rising out of a tumultuous sea in verse 2. Now, in Scripture, the sea symbolizes something. It means something. It's an image of nations raging in rebellion against God. We could go to lots of places to show this, but I'll give you one, Isaiah 17, verse 12. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. That's what the sea represents. We know already, verse 17, that the four beasts are for kings on earth. In verse 23, the angel refers to them as for kingdoms. So interchangeably, they represent kings and kingdoms. That's because the head of state represents the state. You could refer to the nation itself or to the head of that nation, kings and kingdoms, emperors and empires. That's what's going on here. These empires are represented by terrifying ferocious beasts, because they're violent. They are tyrannical, they are corrupt, they are oppressive and unjust. And their evil is a terror that we are not meant to just kind of think about intellectually, but something we're supposed to feel the way a nightmare terrifies you. Look at how this dream shook Daniel, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. This is not just some intellectual matter to sit around and contemplate. Daniel was alarmed. Verse 28, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. You ever wake up in the middle of the night because you had a bad dream and it takes you a little while to kind of regain? (laughs) Breathing fast, maybe sweating. That's how Daniel received this prophetic vision. It came, it started out as a Nightmare, in which he saw a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a fourth beast that's not likened to any known animal we would recognize. He just describes it as one that was different from all the beasts that went before it. It was terrifying and ferocious. If you look up artists' renditions of this vision, most of them depict this fourth beast as some kind of dinosaur. I mean, ten horns, that's five times the number of normal horns any horned creature has that we know of. So this dinosaur with ten horns, some kind of monstrous thing. And I think it's possible to identify the four human empires on earth represented by each beast based on clues within the book of Daniel. And here's where, because of time, I don't have time to get into all of the different interpretations that exist about this. I'm just going to tell you briefly. I read this from what's called a preterist perspective. Preterist comes from a Latin word that means past, believing what Daniel saw was in the future for Daniel it hadn't yet happened but the fulfillment of this is in the past for us so i don't think these are for future empires i think these are for world empires that existed back then here's which ones i think are represented here so the book of daniel has a, has a very discernible structure to it the language starts out in hebrew and then it changes to Chaldean Aramaic, the language of Babylon in chapter, end of chapter 1, and it continues all the way through chapter 7. This is the last chapter in the language of the Babylonians, and then it goes back to Hebrew. So that's interesting. That causes interpreters to go, why does the book have two languages? Why is it split like that? Well, if you look at the languages in Aramaic 2 through 7, there is this noticeable chiasm. Do you know what that is? Like the structure A B C C B. So The ideas presented at the beginning are also presented at the end. So, check this out. Chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's dream about four world empires. Chapter 7 is Daniel's dream about four world empires. Two and seven line up. Three is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Chapter 6 was about Daniel in the lion's den. God delivering his faithful people through deadly peril. Three and six line up. Right in the middle, four and five, you have four, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, and five, Belshazzar is humbled, and the kingdom is taken from him. Those two line up. You get that? So two and seven go together. So the four world empires in two, probably the same four world empires as seven, and we know from chapter two that the first empire was Babylon because that's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in the interpretation, you, O king, you are the head of gold, the first kingdom. So... In chapter 7, Babylon is represented by the lion with eagle's wings, which is consistent with the way that the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesy about Nebuchadnezzar. They use imagery of a lion and an eagle to describe Nebuchadnezzar in places like Jeremiah 4 and Ezekiel 17 and Ezekiel 49. We don't have time to go there. I'm going to try to move really fast because I'm trying to... There's so much in chapter 7. So, according to Daniel 2, the second empire is the one that follows Babylon. That would be the Medes and the Persians. In Daniel 7, Medo-Persia is represented by this ravenous bear ready to pounce. And it's ravenous because it's barely finished its last meal and it's already raised up to pounce on its next victim. That's how the Medes and Persians are portrayed. The empire to follow them was Greece. Alexander the Great. If you look at a map, just go home and Google Alexander the Great's empire and consider that he died at the age of 32. And he traveled all over the world, from Greece down into Egypt, all the way out into India. He devoured the world. The the Grecian Empire is portrayed here as this leopard with four wings, representing swiftness in all directions, a spanning empire. And the fourth kingdom would be the one that followed Greece. That would be the Roman Empire. Listen to Daniel 2.40, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Describes that fourth empire like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these that's chapter 2 listen to chapter 7 it had great iron teeth it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet that's the roman empire and here's the proof daniel 2:44 tells us about that fourth empire in the days of these kings That would be the kings of the fourth empire. In the days of these kings of the fourth empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. And so 600 years after Nebuchadnezzar's dream, three world empires later, God delivered his kingdom in the days of the Roman Empire just as he said he would. Which is awesome. This is a side note. Interpreters look at Daniel and they say there's no way that was written by Daniel during the Babylonian Empire because it foretells certain things that we know happened in history. So it couldn't have happened before the fact. It must have been written after the fact. And somebody was pretending to have prophesied, but actually they were just writing down history. Even if you granted that, they say maybe it was written like 200 B.C. instead. Fine, that's still 200 years before the coming of the Messiah in the Roman Empire. But we believe it was actually written by Daniel. The Roman Empire is not here compared to any known predator. It's just this terrifying, dreadful beast with ten horns. And Daniel 7.24 says those ten horns represent ten kings. And I understand those ten kings to be the ten Roman emperors who reigned from Julius Caesar until the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That would have been under Vespasian. Ten Roman emperors who reigned during the ministry of the Messiah and his apostles. And as Daniel's attention is fixed on those horns, he sees this little horn emerge, uprooting three other ones. And that little horn is remarkable for two things, at least. It's blasphemy. It is speaking words against the Most High, verse 25. And it's persecution. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, verse 21. And 25 says, he wore out the saints of God. That little horn, I believe, is referring to Emperor Nero. There are other possible interpretations. I'll tell you why I think it's Nero briefly. According to verses 8 and 20 and 24, three other horns are uprooted by this one. So Nero himself was not in the line of succession to be an emperor in Rome. There were three emperors before him in Rome who reigned during his lifetime, and all three of them were assassinated to make room for Nero. The last one was his stepfather, who was possibly poisoned by Nero's own mom so that Nero could take the throne. Three others assassinated to make room for him. And here's the second reason. Verse 25 says, they, the saints, talking about the saints, shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Time, singular, times, plural, and half a time. Interpreters understand that to mean three and a half years, okay? Listen to Revelation 13, 5, which, by the way, if you want to go on your own and read Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 along with Daniel 7, it's very clear that Revelation is directly referring to, it's just taking all this language from Daniel and repeating it. The overlap between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 is remarkable. Revelation 13, 5 says this about the beast, and the beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 42 months is, do the math. Three and a half years. Three and a half years or 42 months. When Nero was blamed for the great fire in Rome, he accused the Christians of starting the fire. And a persecution broke out against them in December of AD 64. And that persecution lasted until Nero committed suicide in June of AD 68. That's 42 months. Three and a half years. And Nero was an awful awful beast. He murdered several of his own family members, uh, including his own mom. One of his wives died in childbirth, but the rumor is that he kicked her to death. He was a homosexual, and in his first same-sex marriage he had acted out, he dressed up like the bride, and in his second, he had a young boy castrated and dressed him up as a woman and had him referred to as lady and empress and mistress by everyone else. As you may have heard, he used to light his garden orgies with living Christians tied to stakes, covered in tar, and lit on fire as human torches while he got drunk and engaged in all kinds of vile behavior. And there's more, but I won't mention it here because it's so disgusting. He was a beast. But for all the brutality, And all of the injustice of human governments, human tyrants, human emperors and kings, they are not the main point of Daniel 7. No villain is ever the main point of the story. Why do good stories have beasts in them? So they can be killed. Every good story has a dragon, a beast, a villain, so that it can be killed. And in verse 9, there's this abrupt scene change, and heaven demands our attention. Daniel looks, and he beholds the ancient of days ruling over Everything, And the detailed description of the Ancient of Days in verses 9 and 10 emphasizes for us His glory, His holiness, His righteousness, His purity, His power, His sovereignty. His clothing and hair are white as snow and like pure wool. God is perfect. He is righteous. He is just. He is unstained by the sin of these tyrants on earth. And the throne that He sits on, did you catch His throne itself was fiery flames. And the wheels of the throne are burning fire. And fire is streaming out from him. Fire is often associated with the presence of God in Scripture. Think of Moses in the burning bush. In particular, fire goes before God when he comes in judgment against his enemies and to deliver his people. Listen to Psalm 50 verses 3 and 4. Our God comes before him is a devouring fire fire. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And so the Ancient of Days is seated in judgment, and a hundred million angels are standing before him. A thousand thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. I don't think we're supposed to take that totally literally. The point is way more than you can fathom. Ten thousand times ten thousand, a hundred million angels just for perspective, of all those four empires, the Roman Empire, unlike any others, probably had the greatest standing army ever. At its peak, they maybe had half a million soldiers. Rome, with half a million. The Ancient of Days, with a hundred million angels standing before him. And he is seated because he's not anxious about anything. He is in perfect control over everything. And when he gives his judgment... The mightiest, most terrifying empires on earth collapse. Look at verses 10 and 12. The court sat in judgment. Books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. I mean, that's it. This terrifying beast, that, that, as I looked, it was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. They never have any dominion that they haven't been given, and when God sits in judgment, their dominion is taken away. These beastly kings and kingdoms of the earth are on a leash, and the judgment of the Ancient of Days is the turning point. There are three cycles in this. If you want to go back through and read it on your own, 1st Daniel describes the vision, and then he re-describes the vision as he goes to the angel for the interpretation. And then the angel gives him the interpretation and it's described again. In all three cycles, the turning point every time is judgment was given from the Ancient of Days. That's it. He gives judgment. Those empires collapse and dominion is taken from the beasts and the Son of Man is crowned. Let's look at the Son of Man. Verses 13 through 14. This is the centerpiece of the whole vision. It reveals the Son of Man. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, who's the Son of Man? Well, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial before the high priest and the high priest is demanding to know are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Yes or no? Jesus gives his reply Matthew 26, 63. You have said so, which means I am. Yes, it's true. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy, what further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Why would he tear his robes and be so outraged and accuse him of blasphemy for saying, son of man seated at the right hand of power coming at the clouds of heaven? Because the high priest and everyone else in that courtyard knew that Jesus just quoted Daniel 7 and said, that son of man in Daniel 7, that's me. I am the Daniel 7 son of man. So here's the thing, I think a lot of Christians read that, assuming the Son of Man coming on the clouds refers to the second coming of Jesus. When he comes back, he'll come back on the clouds. But notice in Daniel 7, which direction is he moving? In Daniel 7, he's not coming down from heaven to earth the second time, he's ascending to heaven where he's presented before the Ancient of Days and he is given his kingdom and dominion. Forever and ever. That is, this is his ascent. This is his coronation, his crowning as king. This is the climactic moment in the history of redemption and the most political event that has ever happened in history. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, verse 14. And the reverberations of that moment are more profound than whatever's going to happen on Tuesday. And it already happened. This took place when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended on the clouds into heaven, crowned as king, and he is now sitting at the right hand of his father, ruling and reigning. And all of his enemies are being brought into subjection under his feet, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So notice this, though. The, The passage in Daniel 7 shifts from singular son of man being given dominion to plural saints of the Most High Verse 14, who comes before the ancient of days? The Son of Man. But when the angel interprets what happens there, look at verse 18, the angel says, the saints, plural, of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. The saints, where do they come from? They haven't been mentioned yet at all. So does the kingdom belong to the Son of Man or to the saints of God? Here's what I think is going on here. The Son of Man... The Messiah, God's anointed king, is the representative head of God's new humanity. Right? God made Adam to be the representative head of the human race, the first man. And when he sinned, all humanity was plunged into his guilt and sin. Adam was made in the image of God to rule the earth under God. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion. Adam was meant to rule the world. It was God's purpose to have this world ruled by God humans bearing the image of God, and Adam failed. But Jesus is the last Adam. Adam failed, but God's purpose to have this world ruled by a human bearing the image of God, that purpose did not fail. God's world will be ruled by a man who bears the image of God. And so the Son of God took on full humanity with a nature just like ours, and He is the Son of Man, the second true and better Adam, Who rules this world? There came one like a son of man, that is, a son of Adam, and to him was given dominion. He is the representative head of God's new humanity, which is why the text can say that the saints of God are given dominion. That is staggering. Look at verses 26 through 27. The court shall sit in judgment, and his, that's the the little horn, his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Plural. And then it switches back to singular. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And who is going to serve him? All dominions shall serve him and obey him. I think too many people make this mistake of imagining that the kingdom of God operates like on this purely spiritual plane while all of the governments of the earth, like the United States and China and the United Kingdom, they they function on the the real plane. That's real power, real influence. That's real government. And yeah, Jesus has a kingdom, but it's like imaginary. It's kind of like, you know, the real kings, they're playing in the NFL and Jesus, you know, he's the king of the dodgeball league over here. It's just a different league, different sport, different thing going on. But notice what God says in Daniel 7. He clearly stakes his claim in the domain of kings and kingdoms. The dominion of those four world empires is taken away from them and given to the Son of Man. And when it's given to him, what happens? All the dominions of earth serve him. So he stakes his claim right there. The kingdom of God, get this, it is absolutely political. And by political, I don't mean Republican-Democrat. I don't mean USA versus China. I mean pertaining to the government of the nations of earth. Does God have anything to say about how we live our lives? About how rulers rule their nations? About what's right and wrong? Absolutely, God does. That doesn't mean the church takes control of the state. It means that God claims control of everything. And all these other empires are from below. That's what's stressed by four kings rising out of the earth, it says in Daniel 7. They're from below. Jesus is from above. That's what he said in John 18. My kingdom is not of this world. Not meaning my kingdom doesn't have anything to do with this world, but meaning I don't claim my authority because I rose up and took power over people I was given authority from the one who actually has authority over everything, the Ancient of Days. And so, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth. On this earth, as it is in heaven. The realm of his dominion is this world, the subjects of his dominion are all peoples, languages, and nations. The members of his dominion are all the other dominions of the earth. And unlike these beasts who trample and devour, God's king and God's kingdom advances from the inside out. As the gospel is preached and people are saved and people's hearts are converted, Jesus takes dominion. Not outside in coercion, but inside out new birth, transformation. And all who are united to Jesus by faith possess that kingdom and are authorized by Jesus to tell the world about him. As somebody put it, your calling, that means, is to go present the crown rights of the king in every realm of life. Present the crown rights of King Jesus in every area of your life. I I present the crown rights of King Jesus to my two-year-old, When I discipline him by explaining to him, you can't hit your brother because God commands you not to murder, not to hit. I'm explaining to him, here's the authority, I'm under authority. When I correct him, I tell him, God gave me a job to keep you safe. It's because I obey him that I have to keep you safe. So you obey me because I'm obeying God. I'm presenting the crown rights of King Jesus. We do that to our children. We do that to mayors and city council members to state legislators, to federal government officials, to the presidents and prime ministers of the earth. All peoples on earth are commanded to trust and obey Jesus. And so we were given a commission. And commentators, many of them recognize this. Matthew 28, that great commission, is so noticeably quoting Daniel 7. If you've never seen this before, it's kind of mind-blowing. Daniel 7, 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Daniel 7, that all peoples, languages, and nations should serve him. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, saints of God, you are commissioned by King Jesus to disciple the nations. To proclaim the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ alone. And to teach people to obey everything that he commands. Let me end with Hebrews 2. 8 and 9. Let me say this first. That interpretation I present to you there does not mean that there aren't other human empires on earth that are beastly. There are. There have been many. You don't have to go back very far. Last half century, you can find many. Beastly human empires. It does mean that decisive judgment has already been given and Jesus has been crowned king. And the kingdoms of this world, as Revelation, I believe it's Revelation 11 says, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Let me end with Hebrews 2, 8 and 9, and we'll come to the table. In case you're thinking, well, if Jesus is king now, why does the world look so bad? Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he, God the Father, left nothing outside his control. Done. Everything's already been put in subjection to him. He's already been crowned king. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It doesn't always look like it because there are some still in rebellion. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you, we give you all of our praise, all of our trust, all of our allegiance, all of our obedience, and we pray that you would have the dominion that is rightfully yours. Pour out repentance on our nation, turn those who are in rebellion against you in humble repentance from their sin toward you in faith, God, have mercy on us, put an end to evil and corrupt empires and governments, and let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Rule in our hearts alone, we pray, amen. It's our practice on the first Sunday of every month to come to the Lord's table, to partake together, eat the Lord's supper And if the lordship of Jesus is a political claim, he claims authority over and above every other human government on earth, the Lord's table is the way that we participate in that. Who are the saints of the Most High who have been given the kingdom? Those who are united to Jesus by faith. How do we express our union with him first in baptism and then regularly through the table? And when you come to the table, you come in response to a word Jesus spoke to you when he said, this is my body given for you. This cup that you drink, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for you. And that word that Jesus speaks set his kingdom apart from any other kingdom on earth, right? You've got far left kingdoms that would say, this bread that you eat is the bread of the rich taken back by the state for you because you deserve it and they stole it from you. And then there's a whole philosophy that says, this bread that I eat, my hands made this. I earn this for me. It's mine. I deserve it. This bread, it's a gift. You receive it by grace. When you eat it, you know, this was given to me. The kingdom is a kingdom of grace because the king is the king of grace. And so come and welcome to King Jesus. Uh, I'm going to open up these elements here, the the cup and the bread. Those are individual, so you can take those uh, without touching everybody else's, and uh, come down the center aisle and then take these elements as family or with others as you fellowship with Jesus who communes with us at the table. Uh, there is a gluten-free option here as well. When you're ready, come.